there was a young soldier that was traveling with his commanding officer one day, and, and they boarded a train, and the only available seats were across from a young, attractive woman and her grandmother. And so the two sat down across from the ladies and engaged in conversation, and it didn't take long for everybody to realize there was an obvious mutual attraction between the young soldier and the young woman. As the train continued down the tracks, it entered into a tunnel and it sent the train car into complete darkness, and immediately two sounds were heard. First with the sound of a kiss, followed by the sound of a slap across someone's face. Right away, the grandmother thought, I cannot believe that young man kissed my granddaughter, but I'm glad she gave him the slap he deserved. Granddaughter thought to herself, I am so glad he kissed me, but I wish my grandmother hadn't slapped him for doing it. Commanding officer thought to himself, I don't blame the boy for kissing the girl, but I wish she had not missed him and hit me instead. And that young soldier couldn't help but smile as that train car broke into the sunlight because he had managed to kiss the pretty girl and slap his commanding officer and get away with both. (laughs) That's funny, not just because of what happened, but how it happened. Now, as disappointing as it may be, I share that with you, not so you know who to slap and how to get away with it but rather because it illustrates the importance of doing the right thing at the right time, even when we can't see. And I think often when we're chasing the will of God, it can feel like a dark train car with slaps and kisses, and we're trying to make sense of it, and we feel like we're just along for the ride, and it's confusing. But that's why we're taking time this week to talk about the will of God, and we're doing it in three specific ways. Today, we're talking about how it works. We're talking about God's pattern tonight. Tomorrow, we're talking about how we play in it, our part. And then on Wednesday, we're talking about how we get off track, how we get lost in it. Now, tonight, we're going to end up hanging around in 1 John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and you want to click or turn to it, you can go ahead and get there now and put your thumb in there and just stay there. We're eventually going to get there. But before we do that, I think I want to review just a couple of things or talk about some subjects that matter. Because I think in the Christendom world, Christians for many years have focused on engaging people with the questions of what would happen if you died tonight. You ever heard somebody ask that question? Maybe you even asked that question yourself. It's not a bad question, but the question is kind of limiting. It actually facilitates a bit of half-thinking. Because it's, it's asking about the one side of the equation of if you do die, but it leaves no conversation around what happens if you live. How would you live tomorrow if you don't die tonight? And the reality is we have meaning and purpose, and tomorrow if we wake up and we're still alive, we have a purpose, God has a plan, he has a will for us, so how are you going to live if you don't die tonight? Now, the church, the church often is just misunderstood to be something that's a building, The dictionary defines it as a building, as a place of worship, public place of worship, a building. But the church, the people of God, the the church of Jesus is people, it's us. We are the church, we don't just go to church. But if we forget that, if we don't understand that, then, then we end up struggling to understand the will of God because we've gotten lost in our identity and we think the church is a place we go and not a people who go. And if we're ever going to understand fully the will of God and engage the will of God, we've got to have the posture of knowing that we are a people who go. And the church is not just a place to go. You remember the, the kids thing we used to do? Like, here's the church, and here's the steeple. Open the doors and 
Okay, you know it. All right, come on, let's, well, let's do this together. Come on, put your hands together, make your church. Say it with me. Here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Now look left and right and see who doesn't have anybody in their church. Come on now, where are the people? Where are the people? Listen, that's, a, that's fun, that's catchy, it's memorable. I learned that as a kid. But it kind of has some of that half thinking that we need to get away from. And I have a pastor author friend who, who kind of changed it up a bit. He says, here's the church made up of people sitting in a building with a pretty steeple. Now, he's not challenging, and I'm not challenging, having beautiful, wonderful places to gather and worship God and engage in discipleship and and study his word. He's really hinting at the reality that we can forget why we gather. We forget that we have a purpose and that we are a people who go, not, not just the church being a place that we go. And tonight, as we step back into understanding how we engage the will of God, as we unpack some principles that many people don't understand and therefore struggle to make sense of the will of God, that it feels like a dark train car where there's kisses and slaps and you don't know what's happening, but to really understand the pattern that God has so that we can begin to know and do his will. We started that conversation this morning around the heart. And, and, and again, just as review, the heart is the center of our life. This, this represents our passion, our, our desire, our love. It represents what holds our attention and our affection. This is, this is our heart. And if we ever want the, our heart to line up to the heart of God, which we're saying is expressed in the cross, that the cross is an expression of love. God sent his son Jesus because he loved us. God himself is love. If we want our heart to align to the cross, we can't just move our heart. We've got to first move our treasure. That's what this stuff over here represents. It, it's, it's anything and everything that we value. It's the stuff that defines our identity, the things we put hope in. It's our accomplishments. It's our credentials. It's, in fact, this is my wife's master's degree diploma, and she doesn't even know I took it from the house. <laughs> this is our stuff. And as we saw this morning, our heart doesn't lead, it follows. And wherever our treasure is, our stuff, that's where our heart's going to be. So if we want our heart to align to the heart of God, we need to move our stuff Surrender it to him, position it with open hands, surrender all that we have so that our heart can come into alignment to God. This is the starting point for knowing and doing the will of God. If you start any other place, you're going to get to a dead end or a cul-de-sac and struggle to go, why is this not working? And the pattern by which God reveals his will to us is broken already because it hinges and is rooted in the condition, location, and status of our heart. Are you tracking me? All right. So here's the deal. That train car joke, it's funny because the three people draw the wrong conclusion because they start in the wrong place. They start with the wrong person and they start to write the story from there with the wrong people involved doing the wrong different things. And and as, as that can happen in a dark train car, we can do that with God. When we're not sure, we can't see, we can start in the wrong place and then we start to write a story that isn't true. And we need to recalibrate back to truth. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a place where we do not know the will of God. And we can't figure it out. 
we get frustrated, and then we want to bail on God. We think he's not showing up, and the deal is we didn't start in the right place. So the reason I started this conversation for the week around the location, condition, and direction of your heart is because that's where it has to start. And hopefully you took time today and between classes or mealtimes, talking with each other, maybe you've been just debriefing that whole monitor, guard, and focus your heart. It's important. You've got to start there. But I want to move past that today. I want to move past that tonight as we engage back in the conversation. Because we do place value on things. We, we, and every time we do, it says a little bit about us, but it also makes things possible and impossible in our life because it connects to our heart. And that's one of the reasons why the missionary and church planter, Paul, he's a crazy, cool, awesome guy, wrote in a letter to the church in Corinth. He said this in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He said, and he, that's Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. Live for who? Him. No longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. So to follow Jesus, to do his will, means we no longer live for ourselves. Or, or if, if we don't live for him, we're actually we're living for lesser things. doesn't matter what it is. If it's not him first, we're living for lesser things in our life. We're to live for God and his mission. And we do that in the context of community. We're supposed to do that in the context of the church. And we are the church. We don't just go to church. And we're supposed to be a worshiping community of missional disciples on a journey. And that journey can feel like a train car that enters into a tunnel, but God never leaves, he never forsakes, he is always stepping in leadership if we'll let him. But if we don't understand his pattern, then we end up with questions. And we start writing a story that isn't true because we can end up starting in the wrong place. The center of his mission is our purpose. At the center of his mission is our purpose, which means the church, us, The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. And that may seem like I'm splitting hairs, but I'm not. The mission doesn't exist for us. We exist for the mission. And when we begin to understand that, that changes radically how we look at, explore, and pursue the will of God. When we understand that we exist for the mission, it will change your perspective. That mission is a grand adventure. It's nothing, there's nothing that compares to it. It's nothing like it. But we can end up pursuing things from the wrong starting point, end up in places we never intended to go because we drift with our heart as our stuff goes another direction. And we can invest in lesser things as we pursue some other purpose that really isn't all that big of a deal. Kind of like the fellows in this video. So check this out. You just want to keep pushing yourself. You want to see how far you can take it, how long you can stand the heat without killing yourself. Everyone's stuck in a rut, man. We just got tired of the same old thing. No. No lid. Yeah, I am willing to die for this. I mean, I don't want to, but no lidding is a way of life. It's how I became a man. Extreme coffee drinking is the ultimate, man. It's just the ultimate adrenaline rush. Yeah, you know, I got these sissy sippers coming up to me all the time saying, you're crazy and you have no fear. I've had third-degree burns over 75% of my lips. We're no litters, man. It's what we do. It's who we are. Look at that, man. Hey, look at that. Superheated to 450 degrees. No lid, no coaster, wobbly desk. And the most important stack of papers I've ever done for this company. Woohoo! 
Adventure, baby. That's why we get out of bed in the morning. Tried to be a normal person, have a normal cup of joe. I didn't work. There's no risk. There's no adventure. What's life without adventure? Okay, as funny as that is, living for the purpose of no lids is not living in a grand adventure. It's not how we truly live. Actually, that's one of the ways we can live for a lesser purpose. With stains on our shirt and burns on our body, that's not living for a greater purpose. It's, it's, we really are positioned to live for life and death. We're positioned to live for things that are eternal. I think sometimes in the journey of life and faith with God, we get lost in the fact that that whole thing is a journey. And, and it's an adventure. And it's one that is incomparable. I came across a quote uh, a while back, and I want to share it with you. I'm going to have the tech guys jump back with me. But it's, it's, a, it's attributed to Anonymous, but I want to read it to you, and you can track along with us. So it says that life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. <laughs> I love that. That stirs my heart. That resonates within me. To be driving towards something and pursuing something that matters where it's messy and it's dangerous and it costs something and there's sacrifice, but it matters and ripples into something much bigger than us. I love the sentiment behind that. There's risk, there's passion, there's pursuit of more. And we are a people on a journey and God has a purpose and a plan for us. And he wants to do great things in us and through us to see our cities and our communities and the world in its entirety change through the gospel of Jesus. And we need to take the lid off, not of our coffee, but the lid of our, off of our relationship with him. And the throttles we put on it, and the restrictions we put on it, and the control we put on it, and the independence we keep and hold just in case this God thing doesn't quite work out, at least we can do it our way. It's to slide in broadside, totally used up. But this is not a guessing game. It's not a journey where we're in the dark and it slaps and kisses only and we have no clarity. God actually has a pattern. And what I want to do tonight is I want to talk to you about you need to know two things, but you need to do one thing. For us, we need to, we need to know two things and do one thing. And the first thing that we need to know tonight is that God is love. God is love. It, it's not an aspect of who he is. It is who he is. He is love. And John, one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote in 1 John 4, so if you got your thumb there, jump with me to verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Because God is love. There is no action that he can take apart from love. He is the definition of love. He does nothing apart from it, even if what we're experiencing feels like a slap. It is irrelevant whether it feels good or not because what God does in that moment, he's actually working in the context of love. He loves you. 
and he loves me. I'm a knucklehead, man. He loves the people sitting next to you. God is love. That's the first thing we need to know. The second thing we need to know is that God loves. He is love, but he expresses that love. And his love is constant. It's not more or less in different seasons and times. It is constant. It's not based in any circumstance or condition. And he loves. He loves us. And you and I don't have to do anything to be loved by God. He already loves us more than we love ourselves, which is often a lot. We don't have to do anything to be loved. God loves us and he wants our best. That's why he invites us to more. That's why he calls us to live life to the full. It's why he calls us to live by his principles and why he calls us to align our stuff and our heart to his heart so that we can experience his best. Now sometimes I think we get a little mixed up in this because we think his love is like our love. But it's not. His love is not like our love. He he does not love like we do. Our love is typically limited to certain people, the people we like, people we get along with, the people that we trust. It's often conditional. It's based on how well that other person has treated us, what we've gotten from that relationship, and there's just other dynamics that make it conditional, and it's usually limited in how far it goes. That's how we love. That's how I love in my flesh. But God's love is not exclusive, it's not proportional, and it's not not conditional. So here's the thing. We're created for intimacy with God, and we can love like him because he is love. And we know what love is because he loved us first. We know what love is because of what he does and what he is doing and what he's done. And we know that because John, just seven verses ahead of that verse 16, says this, 1 John 4, verse 9. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is love. Our limited definition of love is not the same as his. The great thing is that we can live in light of how he loves, and that's the beginning of our love being marked by his love. So I said there's two things that we need to know and one thing we need to do. In order to get to the thing that we need to do, we're gonna back up a little bit further in 1 John, and then we're gonna jump forward in 1 John. So we're going directly to verses seven and eight. Track with me if you're following along. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now jump to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Because he first what? Loved us. Because he first loved us. Look, being loved leads to living loved. It's an active expression. And, and in his love, we overcome sense of unworthiness. We overcome insecurity. We overcome selfishness and uncertainty in the train cars of life. We are loved and we can love because of him. Now you may be thinking, okay, that makes sense. I get that, but how do I practically live that out? How, how do I keep my heart aligned to him with my stuff and not drift? How do I, how do I make this stick? How, how do I stay within his, his steps and stay within his love? How do I move along that path? 
Well, here's the deal. Jesus identified two commands that surpassed every other command. You remember what they were? We're to love God and love others. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Two greatest commandments. He elevated those two commands. So what, what we have here is a vertical reality and a horizontal reality. Loving God and loving others. And without the vertical reality, we really can't fully do the horizontal reality. And if we're not doing the horizontal reality, it's proof we don't have the vertical. They're linked. They're linked in a similar way to our stuff and the heart. And the vertical reality is expressed in the horizontal. I want you to think about it this way. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says something. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. So what he does in that moment is he establishes a link between love and obedience. In seven words, he establishes an eternal link between love and obedience. And as we've been talking in this conversation already, we already know that the heart plays into that reality. Love and obedience are linked. If, if we love, we will obey. If we don't obey, we will not, we, do, we really don't love. And, and this seems simple, but the reality is we can struggle with it. We can say, God, I, I love you, but I'm struggling to live in obedience to you. Or we can say, God, you know what? I am obeying the things that I know you want me to do, but I'm not feeling it. I'm not, I'm not feeling that love connection with you. And that's where the dark train car starts to happen and we start to feel slaps and kisses and we start to wonder what the heck is going on. But love and obedience are eternally linked. The problem is when we look at this, they're not connected in a straight line. There's a pattern. There's other components to this, other pieces to it. It's not just a straight line. See, Jesus is getting ready to say in verse 21, and that John 14, verse 21, here's what he says. He goes on to say this. He says, and and listen, this sheds light on this whole will thing. It blows the doors off of the concept of understanding his will. In verse 21 of John 14, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So that's love and obedience. Okay, the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Oh man, do you see what he just said? Do you see the implication of what he just said, what this means? See, think about it this way. Let's walk back to this concept again for just a moment. See, God is love. He loves us. Because he loves us, he seeks to make himself known to us. There's this thing called prevenient grace. It's basically a fancy word of saying that he loved us enough to go first. And and, and he reveals himself to us in a manner so that we can know him. He wants to know us. He wants us to know him. And so he reveals who he is so we can, we can actually know him. And because he is love, then there is a direct connection next to the reality that we can love. Scripture says we love because he first loved us. So when he shows himself to us in a manner that we can understand and grasp and lay hold of, it leads us to the place where we, knowing his love, can actually love. In Psalm 46, 10, it says, he says, be still and know that I am God. That's the beginning of this journey to knowing him, to loving him. And because he first loves us, we can love. So really what's happening here, it's all on him. We're not initiating this stuff. We're responding. But it doesn't stop there. 
See, we think we want to take from no to love and drop to obey, but that's not how it works. It's not a straight line from love to obey. See, once, once we realize who he is, when we know him, we love him. And when we love him, well, now we move into a place and a posture of trust. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love always trusts. And what it means to know him and to love him is that we risk, and we risk in trust. So to know him is to love him, to love him is to trust him. It's beautiful, it's great, I love that it works this way. But too many people stop right here. I made a decision, I trusted him with my life, I've chosen to follow him, so I stop right here. And they never move down and connect it to obedience. But the reality is, if we know him, we will love him. If we love him, we will trust him. And if we trust him, we will obey him. No ifs, ands, or buts. See, if we, if we don't obey, then it means we really don't trust. And if, we don't, if we're not trusting, we're not demonstrating and risking in trust, then it means we really don't love, because love always trusts. And if we don't love, it, means, it really means we don't know him. Because to know him is to love him. This is the point that we engage. When we don't obey, it has this domino ripple backwards. It all collapses. We don't obey, it means we don't trust, which means we don't love, which means we don't really know him. But here on the flip side of this, you've got to listen to this. <laughs> This is worth the price of admission tonight, right here. This is it. Because Jesus just got done saying that if you love me, you obey my commands. And, and, and my Father, my Father will love you, and I too will love you. And what does he say? I will show myself to you. Oh, snap. This right here changes everything. When we obey him, he reveals more of who he is to us. We prove ourselves trustworthy. We get to know him more. And when we know him more, we can love him more. And we love him more. We trust him more. We trust him more. We obey him more. And then we get to know him more. And we can love him more and trust him more and obey him more and know him more and love him more and trust him and obey him more. And we go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until we jack it up. Till we don't do this. And so many times I've done that. So many times I've taken back control in the darkness and the slaps and the kisses going, you know what, I gotta, I'll figure this out. This is a mess. And I take back control and I choose to do what I think is right. And the moment that we choose not to obey, the whole thing starts to collapse. He doesn't show more of who he is. And then the fact that we didn't obey is the whole backwards trust to love to knowing. Listen, this, this is God's pattern for how he reveals himself to us. Jesus has given it to us. It's the red letter words of Jesus. If you love me, you obey me. And the deal is to know him is to love him, to trust him is to obey him. To love him is to trust him, to obey him is to then, in turn, he reveals more of who he is. We get to know him more. We don't control this. He reveals himself. We don't define this. He is love. He defines it. And this is inherently connected to that love always trusts. So here's where we jack it up. 
when we choose not to move from in a posture of trust into an action of obedience. And then we don't know him. And he can't reveal more of who he is. And the train car goes dark, and the slaps and kisses start to happen, and then we start to blame him. It's not his fault. Are you tracking with me? To know him is to love him, to love him is to trust him, to trust him is to obey him. And when we obey him, he shows himself to us. It's a beautiful, wonderful gift. It's the beginning of living into his will. Knowing him, knowing his will. If you want to know the will of God, obey him. Risk and obey. Remember that old song, Trust and Obey? There is no other way to be happy in Jesus. Right? Whatever you think about the tune, it's truth, man. Because God's ability to reveal who he is and to lead us into his will doesn't get messed up by him. It gets messed up by us when we don't obey. If you want to know his will, obey him. And he'll take you deeper and deeper and deeper. And you'll learn to understand love at a new level and trust at a new level, and obedience at a new level. Here's the deal. This is actually frustrating for me because I find that God, like, I'll experience something really crappy in life, like just this suffering thing, a sacrificing thing, and, and I'll learn, okay, God, you're teaching me love in that. And he goes, okay, Sean, you got that figured out right there? Yeah, I, got, I understand love. And then he pulls that floor out from underneath me and he drops me to another level. I'm like, oh, crap, here we go again. He teaches me another level of love. Same thing with forgiveness. I got forgiveness figured out. That, that thing never should have happened to me. And I, I forgive him though. Okay, you, Sean, you got that figured out? Good. Pulls it out and drops me down. The only time he stops moving in that process is when I stop obeying. You want to know the will of God? You can stay in that cycle of knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying. Just, just that tiny little part of ours. We only get one main part of that thing. Can, can mess the whole thing up. Some time ago, I came across a newspaper article that described how something small can have a big effect. And I want to read a portion of that to you, just to put this in context. It says, apparently on the day in question, a Venus space probe launch vehicle boosted by an $18 million U.S. Atlas rocket, $18 million, was lost because a hyphen was missing from a computer equation. Come on, computer science majors, can I get an Amen. A hyphen. Richard Morris, uh, Morrison, a NASA official, told the House Space Committee investigating the incident that the missing hyphen caused a mathematical miscue. Amen from the math majors. Morrison said, the hyphen gives a cue for the spacecraft to ignore the data the computer feeds into, into its radar until contact is once again reestablished. When the hyphen is left out, false information is fed into the spacecraft control systems, and in this case, the computer fed in hard left nose down and the vehicle obeyed. $18 million U.S. Atlas rocket for the lack of a hyphen. The glory of an eternal king. The ripple into eternity for lives that get to know him. Lost in the hyphen of a lack of obedience. It's a crazy thing that a small hyphen in a computer program causes the destruction of such a scale. That something that small changed everything. But like that missing hyphen, when we remove any part of the knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying equation, even our small part, 
we can end up hard nose, hard left nose down, life. Living for lesser things focused on other things, not focused or faithful to his will. Love is expressed in obedience, doing the right thing at the right time, even when you can't see. And I wonder, in the knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying process, where's your missing hyphen? Where have you stopped in that? Where, where have you failed to respond to his love? Where have you failed to risk in trust? Where have you failed to obey? Where have you failed to lean into knowing him in stillness? Where's your hyphen in the cycle that he has of revealing himself to you? Look, even though becoming a Christian is optional, obedience afterward is not. It's not. So this is God's pattern for us. We can know him. And yes, there's certainty and uncertainty in that whole thing, and we're gonna talk more about that tomorrow, the tension between certainty and uncertainty as we try to navigate his will and stay in a posture of dependence. And I know that tomorrow's chapel is not required, but I really wanna encourage you if you've got the time to be there because it's one of the key components to going forward in the conversation and living into his will. Because we can know. We can know, we can love, we can trust, we can obey. And as we live into that, he reveals more and more and takes us deeper and deeper. It's a beautiful unending cycle until we stop it. Love always trusts. So if we don't trust God, we really don't love him, but when we obey, we prove ourselves worthy and trustworthy. And then he gives us more. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He says, you'll find me, just seek. And we do that as we know, love, trust, obey. So I'm not sure what your struggles, what your failures, what your battles are. I'm not sure which hyphen reality is playing out in your relationship with him today. But God longs for you to just be, to sit in stillness with him and know him. Be still and know that he is God. And as you know him, love him. And as you love him, trust him. And as you trust him, obey him. And then he does that beautiful, wonderful thing of revealing more of who he is to you. So here's what we're gonna do. If you're not living in that cycle, and experiencing the joy of knowing him more and loving him more and trusting him more and obeying him more. You gotta figure out why. And I wanna create space for you to do that. If you're living into it and you're like, Sean, I, I, that's exactly what's been happening and that makes sense to me. I'm just, I'm just going deeper and deeper and I'm running harder and faster. I'm just getting, I'm just in it. And I'm like, awesome, celebrate it. Stay on task. Stay on task. Don't, don't in fear, don't in insecurity, don't in your own certainty, choose not to obey. Keep obeying and he'll keep blowing your socks off. But if it's not working that way for you, you need to understand why. You gotta find out why. Because it's not him. He's not playing a game and he's not hiding in a dark train car. He's the king eternal. He's got a purpose and a plan for you. So as the team just takes a moment to lead us in some worship, I want you to sit in stillness and worship and reflection and work out the no love, trust, obey dynamic with God right now.
If you have, if you find yourself today not in that cycle because you have never asked Jesus to be Lord in your life, you believe he exists and you, you read stuff and you gather in chapel, but you have not given authority to him and, and started moving and knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying, then maybe tonight is actually the opportunity. That's your missing hyphen. You step into relationship with him. You find forgiveness for the junk in your life. You receive the gift of eternal life and you begin to walk with God, knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying. You can do that tonight. Whatever that hyphen thing is, in the next few moments as we worship, I want to encourage you to take the opportunity to step boldly into the next. Not to let your heart drift and not to choose to step away from obedience, but to risk boldly in obedience and submission to the one who knows you and loves you more than anybody else. I leave you with Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. For though the law, or through the law, I, did, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we step into worship, I want to challenge you to step into God's next. Whatever that is, you can leave out of this moment changed because you're living in a pattern and cycle that is unending as his power is at work in you. So would you join me as I pray? And then I'm not even gonna say amen, I'm gonna release you into the next part and we're gonna sing, continue to have that conversation. So take whatever posture you wanna take, let's go before the Father. Heavenly Father, my Lord and my God and my King, tonight in this moment, in this space, I know you're here. I sense your presence, Father. I felt you moving in worship earlier. You inhabit the praise of your people. And you've been in this midst as we've talked. Father, if I've not communicated clearly enough so that my friends, my brothers and sisters can know and understand the pattern you invite them into so that they can know you and love you and trust you and obey you, God, I pray that you would clarify right now for them in their hearts what's missing in the dynamic, why, why they're not running with their hair on fire with you, why they aren't going deeper and deeper and knowing and loving and trusting and obeying. God, I know that often it's that obedience peace, and so I pray that you would just illuminate in the next few moments where we need to obey as we each reflect. You've got more for us, God. We, we haven't run the end of that cycle. We never will till, we, till the day we stand before you. So in these moments, Lord, speak. Lead. Reveal yourself so that we can know you and love you, trust you, boldly risk in obedience with you, knowing you more.